If I was trying to explain why this movement is so important and meaningful, it is because people feel a real attachment to these items. These NFTs become a piece of your identity, and they also become a sort of membership card in this broader community. It's a symbol of your values and your philosophy. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. So, as longtime listeners of the podcast know, it's been a few months since I've hosted The Art Angle because I took some time off in order to welcome a beautiful and almost unbearably cute little baby girl into this world. Well, now I'm back. And while my little baby was learning to do tummy time, another little baby was learning to crawl, walk, run, and even take flight into a twinkly new bizarro digital dimension, taking all of us along with it. Of course, I'm talking about the NFT market, which exploded this spring and has kept on exploding all year long. Today, to catch up on what I've missed in the crypto realm, I'm very happy to be joined on the show by one of the guys who lit the fuse on NFTs, Noah Davis, the head of digital sales at Christie's, who listeners may know best as the guy who sold the Beeple NFT this spring for $69.3 million, waking up the world to the dizzying potential of crypto art. It's a busy time for Noah. Right now, Christie's first on-chain NFT sale on the crypto platform OpenSea is taking place, with some of the coveted works on offer also being displayed in an immersive art exhibition down in Miami during Art Basel Miami Beach, which is turning into a giant coming-out party of sorts for crypto art. Of course, I'd be remiss not to say that this is also a very exciting time for Artnet as well, which is about to hold its own first on-chain auction of major NFT works on December 15th in conjunction with the launch of our new Artnet NFT platform. So stay tuned for that. In any case, that's enough preamble. Let's dive in. So thanks for coming on the show, Noah. Thank you so much for having me. I take it you're having a kind of a boring year. <laughs> what has uh, 2021 been like for you? Uh, incredibly boring. I, I am thirsting for action. No, it's been stimulating, to say the least. I have had more or less a, a trial by fire reporting to you live from within the crucible now down in Miami. And as you say, it's, it's sort of a, a coming out party. I would also say kind of a victory lap for the NFT space been a hell of a year, truly. So let's walk backwards a little bit. What was the career arc that brought you to become the head of digital at Christie's? Sure. So I've been working in art at auction for a little more than 10 years. When I was in college at NYU, I interned at the Gagosian Gallery in New York and Los Angeles. And then briefly, I worked for Sotheby's before I came over to Christie's to work in the contemporary art department. And after doing the contemporary art thing for quite a long time and running the online sales for the contemporary art department in New York for Christie's, I was just in the right place at the right time for the NFT moment to happen. So let me ask, what was the Christie's digital operation like when you got there? So when I first started working on the online sales, it was not a very glitzy or glamorous category. If we're being generous, this was the place where stuff already had its first shot came to have its second shot or third shot before we sent it home. And that category 
I'm proud to say I helped to grow that from what it was to what it is now, which is a reliably pretty profitable platform where we feature post-war and contemporary art that is at a entry price point, but is pretty respectable. It's a pretty nice spectrum of what's available in the post-war and contemporary art market. And so what is your job at Christie's exactly? What does your title encompass? Well, now I like to say that I'm just the NFT guy at Christie's because I don't really do much at all with IRL-based art anymore. I used to be extremely broadly specialized in everything entry-level from post-war through contemporary. And sometimes I would consign to the evening sale sporadically, very infrequently. And now, ever since March, I've been only working in NFT-based art. But that being said, you know, I went from doing something like $2 million in business last year to now I think we're approaching like $120 million. So it's a very humbling, terrifying kind of jolt in numbers, but has been extremely exciting too. And then before this spring, you know, when everything kind of caught fire, how much were NFTs on Christie's Horizon? Because I know that there were certain little, you know, dips into the pond, even from a few years back. Yeah, I have to give all the credit to Anne Bracegirdle, who's no longer with Christie's now. She's brilliant, was a specialist in our photography department and was sort of our first blockchain-pilled colleague at Christie's and was really evangelizing for crypto and blockchain before anybody else. We sort of dipped our toes into this space in 2018, thanks to Anne, really, who organized, I think, our first art and tech summit in London in that year, where we gave out a bunch of souvenirs, NFTs by an artist named Robbie Barat. Those NFTs, which were very broadly kind of just ignored or lost, those are now regarded as masterpieces of burgeoning NFT art history. So they're referred to as the lost Robbies. And they can trade for upwards of $700,000 and counting. So really amazing to think that something that we gave away is now a coveted piece of real art historical import. I mean, I think that's a lesson to everybody in the art world. Just never throw out any of your swag. <laughs> keep all keep all your swag because <laughs> you never know. Yeah, you never know. And then subsequently, more recently, the last year or two, we offered a painting that was accompanied by an NFT. So a kind of hybrid physical and NFT lot from Ben Gentili, who goes by the artist named Robert Alice. Until this year with the Beeple, those were our only sort of forays into, as you say, crypto art and NFTs. So on May 11th of this year, Christie's offered nine CryptoPunks from the personal holdings of their creators, Matt Hall and John Watkinson. So why was that significant? And what was the reaction like? So the punks are really the alpha and the omega when it comes to NFT collectibles and NFT art. I'm really liberal with my definition of art, by the way, I should say up front. I regard the CryptoPunks very much as art. A lot of people would probably argue that they're collectibles. I think that that distinction is pretty pretentious and useless. So I really think of them as the beginning and the end for NFTs. This is a generative art project. Matt and John are technologists first, artists second. I think they're even kind of uncomfortable with that distinction. These 10,000 punks, none of which are identical. There's a massive amount of variety and a natural hierarchy of collectability. But then there's also a kind of sentimental attachment that people have to various traits that they 
really rolled out for the first time, like 3D glasses and hoodies and these different sort of very niche identifiers that are important for the crypto community. So with the punks, I think they established a kind of rule of thumb for how NFT-based art projects and collectibles can be successful and how you can build a community around them. And that is really the secret sauce. If I was trying to explain why this movement is so important and meaningful, it is because people feel a real attachment to these items. These NFTs become a piece of your identity, and they also become a sort of membership card in this broader community. It's a symbol of your values and your philosophy. It's your identity in this weird new place that is, I think, going to become critical for all of us, which is the Web3 environment. So bringing the CryptoPunks to the evening sale was as good as we were going to get in terms of a retrospective consignment, something that really celebrates of this very nascent space, but also commands the kind of price tag that we would expect to see in the evening sale. So in some ways, this was a very controversial thing. We're selling these pixelated avatars in the context of the juggernauts of 21st century and 20th century art. But also, it really did make sense. There was no other option. If I was going to place any NFT in the evening sale in May earlier this year, it was going to be CryptoPunks. There was no doubt in my mind. So on March 13th, an NFT came on the auction block. Beeple's Every Days, the first 5,000 days, a collage of 5,000 digital images created by the artist Mike Winkleman, which he had made over nearly 14 years at the rate of one per day. How did the day of the sale start out for you? And where did it go from there? <laughs> so the sale, it was an online-only sale, and it took place over the course of a really interminable 14 days. So the first eight minutes were really remarkable. Again, I, I've been running online sales for the contemporary art department for like four or five years. Typically, you get the vast majority of your bids in the very 11th hour. The last couple of hours of bidding really is where you see the, the massive volume. And for this sale, we opened the bidding at 100 bucks because we frankly had no idea what was going to happen. And my feeling was, let's just let it rip and see what goes down. So we opened the bidding at $100. And within 8 minutes, we went from $100 to a million dollars, which is totally ridiculous. At a million dollars, our cap kicked in for bidders where we needed to start vetting them one by one to make sure that they could actually settle up at that level. So that's the only reason why the bidding stopped at a million. It would have kept going had we not had that bid cap in place. So that was absolutely stunning. And then for the rest of those two weeks, we were reaching out to the registrants to clear them to bid at their requested levels and getting to know these new clients because ultimately we had, I think, more than 40 people place bids, more than 20 above the million dollar level. And all of the bidders except for three were new to Christie's. So that's just truly outlandish. That's never happened before by a long shot. Those kind of numbers are staggering. And that's part of the reason that I stuck around. And it compelled me to stay and give another look at what this all is and why this happened. So to dig down into that a little bit more, because this sale was an instant legend. It made people the third most expensive living artist after David Hockney and Jeff Koons. And it sent shockwaves around the planet 
not seen since the sale of Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. So aside from the staggering price, there were a few unusual things about this sale. One was that instead of being consigned to auction by a collector, it was consigned by Beeple himself. Mm. Why was the sale structured like this, and how was it negotiated? The opportunity came to us via Maker's Place, who are another of the digitally native crypto art, NFT-based art exchanges out there, sort of like Nifty Gateway or OpenSea or Super Rare or Foundation, Known Origin, the list goes on. Maker's Place approached my really brilliant colleague, Megan Doyle. Megan Doyle reached out to me to ask if I'd be interested in placing an NFT in my sale. And I said, yes. And that's basically how this all came to be. We were not even speaking to people initially. Maker's Place introduced us to people and people proposed actually two different works for us to place in the sale. Of course, one was not brand appropriate for Christie's. And so I encouraged him to go back to the drawing board and come up with something. But in any case, we were talking to Mike about placing something in this sale. And his initial submission was the 5,000th entry in the Everyday's project, which is just one still image. I believe it's still pinned to his Twitter. It's basically a self-portrait with Mike as a child doodling in a sketchbook. And he has all of his horrific characters hovering over his shoulder. It's like Buzz Lightyear with breasts and Kim Jong-un and sort of half naked or something. It's really terrifying. And so I said, this is cool, Mike. This is great. But can we please find something that's a little bit more appropriate for Christie's? And that's when he came back to us with the everydays, which in my estimation kind of treats his Instagram like a Duchampian ready-made and, and reappropriates his, his entire project as this new kind of packaged work of art. And it's a kind of celebration of, of everything that he's done with the Everydays project. Like the Boite en Valise. Yeah, there you go. Yes, exactly. So, you know, going back to um, the Salvatore Mundi, which was like the last time that Christie's had this shot heard around the world from the hammer of an auction, there was a line of thinking that a large part of the value of that painting was generated by the price that was paid for it and not vice versa. In other words, that paying such an eye-popping sum, $450 million for the Salvatore Mundi, is what made it incredibly famous or infamous and therefore more useful as a tourism draw, a geopolitical game piece, you know, what have you. So was something similar going on with the people? I think it's a bit of a red herring because it happened. There's no way around this. It's a chicken and the egg kind of thing. It, it is the price that was paid. And certainly that's the reason why it's notorious. And I think that we get really caught up in that number for better or worse. And the advantage of that, in my opinion, is that it onboards a ton of people into this space. It, it at least generates the kind of curiosity and intrigue that can lead to a lasting, meaningful engagement. And that is really what happened with me. I stuck around because I see the utility of decentralization and blockchain technology. And I see through this kind of veil, which can be kind of off-putting, right? The bro-y, over-the-top, flamboyant aspect of all of this. But there is a really brilliant application for this stuff. And it goes beyond just fine art. We're offering a musical NFT in our sale now with OpenSea, a young musician, songwriter, composer, producer, 
Blau is selling via NFT all of the rights to a new musical composition, a new song, a new a new musical production. And that, I think, is really compelling stuff. I mean, the idea of ownership and what objecthood is, is being challenged right now. So just to dilate on that a little bit, so when you say you buy the rights to this song, it's kind of like a microscopic version of the owning the Beatles songbook, where you get all of the you know, royalties and the proceeds that come from owning the rights to these songs. Is that, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Blau is a young musician, producer, DJ, and he's created this new composition, this new production, musical production, and you are buying all of the rights to it. It's just like the Michael Jackson buying the Beatles back catalog, except there's no middleman. It's going directly from the artist to the market. Hmm. So much has been made, and you mentioned this earlier, about how NFTs are bringing new clients to auction houses that they've never interacted with before. So how do you understand what's going on and what is the spectrum of buyers that you're dealing with that maybe you, you didn't have the opportunity to interact with before? Yeah, well, I mean, this should come as no surprise, but SKU is much younger. It is a pretty masculine space now, which I hope will change as more people start to dive into crypto and get blockchain pilled. But for now, it's younger. It is a very global audience. These people have made a lot of their money in crypto markets where they did not put necessarily a ton of capital into this game and now have a lot to play with. So it's a pretty incredible transfer of wealth and a creation of a new, highly sophisticated but niche crowd. They're looking for something very specific. And I think that a lot of young people, and I I certainly count myself in this camp, don't really have much of an appetite for collecting stuff. Things are very inconvenient and pin you down. And there's something really magical about the ephemeral asset in its intangibility and in its capability to transfer ownership without actually moving around. And you don't have to worry about it. It's not something that you can put your elbow through. A lot of the people who are collecting in this space are extremely digitally native, grew up with the internet and have a great love for the utopian potential of technology and are looking forward way more so than they are looking backward. So breaking into new audiences was something that all the auction houses were desperately trying to do for years. Yeah, and not and sorry to just jump in, but like not just not just the auction houses, the gallerists too. Look at all of these art galleries that proliferated around Silicon Valley after the tech boom. And we don't have a clear picture of their books because blockchain does not exist for them yet. But I would venture a guess that those galleries are not nearly as profitable as their flagships in New York or London or Paris or LA. But it's interesting that, you know, there was a direction that the auction houses were tacking in before NFTs, that was something that galleries uh, didn't have available to them, which is sneakers, collectibles, and wristwatches. It seemed like this mm-hmm. was, you know, a can opener that the different houses were using to try to get a much more youthful, global buying audience. So, how do the sneaker collectors, the sneakerheads, the watch collectors, how do they intersect or not? Yeah, they don't really. <laughs> I mean, actually, a lot of crypto native folks and certainly my friends in the space are deep into watches, but I've actually sold more paintings and books and manuscripts even 
to crypto native folks and NFT collectors than watches or shoes. So how do you interact with your buyers? How many have you actually met physically in the real world or the IRL space? And how many um, do you interact with mainly you know, over Discord and Twitter? That's a really interesting question. I love face-to-face engagement. And I've just spent the whole day in Miami with collectors and artists and anons and collaborators. But all day long, every day, I'm having avatar-to-avatar engagement. So it's not face-to-face, but we are definitely connected at all times. And that kind of connectivity is really contagious and addicting too. I spend like an embarrassing amount of hours in private Discord chats and, and on Twitter and DMs and WhatsApp and Telegram and Signal and you name it. Feels like every other collector or anon or person has a different preferred place to engage and, and meeting them there where they want to be is totally fine by me. I do find this to be a highly social marketplace in a way that contemporary art just isn't. You know, the contemporary art world likes to hobnob for sure, but very much on these kind of prescribed terms and pretty much weekly or bi-weekly at best when there's an opening or monthly at the gala or the museum fet or whatever. But with crypto and with NFTs, this is a 24-7 space. So right now, a lot of attention in the NFT market is going to profile pics or PFPs, as they're called, Mm -hmm. the digital pictures that people can use as their avatars on Twitter or other social media platforms. And the two hottest ones right now are CryptoPunks and the Board Ape Yacht Club with celebrities like Jay-Z and Snoop Dogg's on Team Punks and Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Curry on Team Apes. What is the difference between the two? And to use a musical comparison... Are the punks to the Beatles as the apes are to the monkeys, so to speak? <laughs> uh, that's fun. It's really an interesting question. More recently, I've heard people, and this is sort of disparaging, and I don't think it's very fair to Matt and John, but I've heard some people say that the punks are like a dead artist, you know, someone who has already put their art out there and it exists and they are no longer making anything because they haven't really innovated or given out a new roadmap for the project, which is totally their prerogative, right? And I respect their desire to be really deliberate, methodical, and slow with this. And actually, I think that that's, in some ways, a really strategic move. But the board apes are much more innovative and willing to take risks and play around with the IP. They actually allow you to own your token, the IP, the underlying intellectual property represented in your token. The punks, that's not the case. If you own the punk, you can use it for your avatar and social media. It can be your identity, but you can't license it out to create a brand around it or like a TV show. With the apes, you can. So there's this kind of sense that the apes are a little bit more laid back. They want to party. They are fun. And that's sort of the gist of it, right? It's a little bit more rock and roll. Whereas the punks are very much like this sophisticated symbol of wealth and being way ahead of the curve and having a very Web3 native kind of intelligence. And how important are these communities to the NFT phenomenon? Critical. Without punks, none of this ever happens. This is all thanks to Matt and John, Larva Labs, the CryptoPunks. Without them, none of this happens. 
And <laughs> I mean, I believe that your Twitter presence is non-fungible Noah, which is very funny. <laughs> and your your own avatar is this little red pixelated frog with blue glasses, which places you in the Cryptodes camp. Mm, yes. Where you are one of 6,969 digital amphibians who are trying to escape the truly despotic rule of the evil King Gremlin. So can you, <laughs> what, what does that mean? What, can you explain what's going on here? Uh, uh, you're killing me. Gremlin is, is the artist who created the cryptodes, and I love Gremlin. Shout out Gremlin. Shout out Motivate Me, Someone, the whole Toads team. I love you guys. They're friends. And I think what they created with this stuff is really amazing and unique. The Toads are our CCO. So it goes a step further even than the Bored Apes. Anybody can do whatever they want with any Toad. Nobody owns this stuff. It's extremely crypto-native in that way. But the Toads are kind of a project without a roadmap. And that is deliberate. You hear a lot of NFT projects nowadays talking about roadmaps and deliverables and plans and, and making all sorts of outlandish promises about what they're going to deliver. That's when you end up in the sort of gray area where you're talking about an NFT or a security. And I don't like that. I love the idea that an NFT project is what it is. It is literally just this bunch of pixels and you can do with it what you want. That to me seems like a real gateway to a true metaverse, which I hope we're going to build. And that's a whole nother kind of topic of discussion. But the Toads are really just about the vibes. If you like the Toad, if you really resonate with that little character, you can be a part of this community. You can buy in and, and show your allegiance to this kind of philosophy, which is one that is all about decentralization and independence and autonomy and finding your tribe. Cryptodes is not the only NFT that I resonate with on this kind of level, but I definitely feel a kind of kindred sort of connection to these folks and not just the team who I know pretty well at this point, but to everybody I see rocking a toad PFP on, on Twitter. I, I really do regard them as people who share certain important kind of viewpoints about the world and, and want to build one that looks like the world I want to build. So that sounds like a lot of fun, but there's also this dark side to NFTs. In fact, NFTs are like some kind of spooky polyhedron that is covered in dark sides. First of all, there's the environmental impact where cryptocurrency, which is the basis of all NFTs, devours an enormous amount of energy with Bitcoin alone sucking down more electricity than Argentina does every year. So this is at a time when the planet seems to be hurtling into an apocalyptic inferno unless the entire world bands together to lower emissions. So how does Christie's make peace with the negative impacts of NFTs? Yeah, it's a really important point. And I do not want to contend with that statement. The environmental impacts are severe. We have to make peace with that. And I'm really encouraged by the brilliant minds in the space. And I see everybody working towards this common goal of figuring out proof of stake, which is ultimately, that's the crux of this issue, right? The thing that makes blockchain and crypto, more generally speaking, damaging to the environment is proof of work, which is how the blockchain functions now. But we're swiftly coming to a kind of inflection point, I think, and a crossroads where proof of stake has to get figured out. So if we don't 
find the way to proof of stake on Ethereum, which is the preferred blockchain for, for NFTs, I think people will migrate to another solution where we can feel good about what we're doing and, and how we're doing it. As far as Christie's offsetting the carbon that is put out there via NFTs, it's actually a pretty small amount for us because we're just selling a couple of NFTs here and there. We're not mining cryptocurrency at Christie's, which is actually what causes most of this environmental damage. But we are looking into how we can offset it, you know, and and certainly we've made commitments to being carbon neutral. Our endeavors in the NFT space are not going to distract us from those goals. And and what about know your customer and anti-money laundering requirements? I mean, there's a lot of skepticism in some parts of the financial arena about how trustworthy crypto is as a financial instrument for buying anything. There are associations with the Dread Pirate Roberts, hiring contract killers via <laughs> online chat rooms. You know, I know that's an extreme case, but how does Christie's, which is really built on this foundation of knowing how to deal with enormous sums of money from known buyers to known sellers, how do you step that up into this new realm? Well, I'd say that the first and foremost, there's a huge difference between anonymity and privacy. And threading that needle is not easy, but it's certainly something that we have to figure out how to do. I think that moving into this new space where everything will be built on a foundation of blockchain, that we're going to get a lot more used to everything being public and disclosed. I actually think that there is much more accountability and scrutiny can be applied when a blockchain is involved. And I'm really looking forward to the day where we have this kind of strata underneath everything that we already do incredibly well with Know Your Customer and, and anti-money laundering protocols. I think that if anything, blockchain is going to strengthen those protocols as opposed to undermine them. It's just a, a question of how do we integrate all of this in a thoughtful way. So I believe in decentralization. I believe in accountability. I believe in visibility and transparency. And these are all things that the blockchain actually helps not hinders. So the, the last kind of point of controversy here is that there is so much volatility in NFTs, both in the underlying cryptocurrency that they, you know, they're based on and also in the NFT market itself, which has gone through a number of wild swings. And in fact, the marketing guru turned NFT entrepreneur, Gary Vee, who has actually sold a few of his NFTs through Christie's for almost a million dollars cumulatively, was the headliner at the recent NFT NYC conference. And he said, and I quote, there is an enormous amount of carnage coming and the amount of money that will be lost is staggering. A lot of people have the majority of their net worth tied up in their tokens and that scares the piss out of me. We are smack in the middle of where the majority of the conversation is about money and that's very dangerous. So are NFTs really a wise investment you know, when compared to something like a Picasso, which has held and increased its value over decades and, and decades since the, the Second World War. Yeah, well, you kind of framed your questions about people all around money, too. I think that it's sort of unhelpful to just fixate on that aspect of this marketplace. And certainly, I agree with Gary, and I think he's a really sage and, and wise dude. And I share his concerns about this, too. This is not a place where you should be dumping 50% plus of your net worth into highly speculative, non-fungible tokens. You should not be 
that overexposed to pudgy penguins or even CryptoPunks. And I regard CryptoPunks as really stores of value at this point. I've definitely swallowed that pill, as you already know. But you have to be careful about this stuff. This is a, a space, again, where accountability is huge and your independence is incredible. You have more responsibility to do your own research in this space and make informed decisions than any other marketplace that exists out there because the risks are enormous and the rewards are too. I really would compel people to think about why they want to get involved in the NFT space before they actually take that plunge. Because I'm certainly not here just to speculate and to make money. I'm here because I resonate spiritually with these people. And I want to help build a Web3 future that is equitable to artists and to creators, first and foremost, and that kind of encourages people to be their best selves. Like I see a real opportunity here to create a wedge and to compel people to be better. That's really my goal is to help bring awareness to blockchain and decentralization and to have a kind of redistribution of power and wealth too. That's great if that comes along with it. But more importantly, this is about seeing society trend in a direction that is healthy. Uh, I think we're clearly at the dawn of a totally new path into the future. And Clayton Christensen, the, the, the great management consultant and business guru, famously said that the technology of the future always starts out looking like a toy. And Christie's <laughs> has, to its immense credit, been a major player in bringing this into the center of the table. And I wonder, how many NFTs have you sold through auction at Christie's to date? Oh, man, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, we've got, I think, around 20, a little bit more than 20 in this sale that is going to open up for bidding on the 4th. It's going to be browsable on, on December 1st on OpenSea. I know it's more than $100 million worth of NFTs, which is still just a totally mind-boggling, staggering number. But there are very, very, very many NFTs out there. And certainly, if you think that you might be interested in owning one, there's probably one out there that's just calling your name. And are you guys doing private NFT sales, or does such a thing not exist? Well, I've helped to broker some private sales introducing people to one another, but I see no reason to get involved in the middle when there's blockchain. We have taken a few things on consignment. We have not sold anything privately. I think that the utility of that service uh, when there's a blockchain involved, again, is that's TBD. The jury's out there. So what do you think about the Tushin? About the Tushin? The Constitution. Oh, the Constitution. Oh, man. Uh, the Constitution DAO. I love Constitution DAO. I know very many people. In fact, the <laughs> Alejandro Navia, I think, whose house I'm in right now, thank you, Ale, for giving me a quiet room to record this, was a member of Constitution DAO. I was really rooting for them. I, I was hopeful that they would win the auction. I think that it's a shame that basically their cards were on the table by nature of how a DAO works, but we're still experiencing growing pains, right, with this new amazing tool. I think that we will see a lot more activity from DAOs at auction. And certainly DAOs will get a little more sophisticated with how they conduct their business. And I think that the age of the DAO is truly upon us. And it's possibly one of the most disruptive tools in the Web3 toolkit. We've just only really scratched the surface with what DAOs can do. So for just the listeners at home, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization, which is kind of a collective 
that can jointly own an artwork or a series of artworks or a number of artworks according to certain bylaws. So, Noah, where do you go from here? What does the near-term future look like? And what does the longer-term future look like? I have no idea. (laughs) I've been telling people I don't have a crystal ball. Like The closest thing that I have to a crystal ball is probably a snow globe. And so the best I can do is shake it up and see what happens. Certainly having a lot of fun doing that. My allegiance is is really to this space and any decisions I make about you know what I bring to market and how I present it, those decisions are going to be informed by this audience and those kind of relationships that I've solidified in these last six months. I really feel a responsibility to this space to be helpful in bringing mass adoption to blockchain and hopefully there's a decentralized future ahead of us where there's a really equitable, beautiful Web3 that we can all enjoy. And I've got one last question, which comes from a mutual friend of ours, the Artnet news columnist and Benvenuto Cellini of NFTs, Kenny Schachter. Oh, Kenny! So when are you going to start making NFTs yourself? (laughs) Maybe I already have. You don't know. (laughs) That's the beauty of... Remember when I was talking about anonymity and privacy and all that good stuff? I can have 20 different identities and you wouldn't know it. Okay. Thank you very much for coming on The Art (laughs) Angle today, Noah, in in this present identity of yours. Pretty exciting stuff. Yeah, thank you very much. It's amazing always to talk about this stuff, and it's super fascinating, and and I really encourage everybody to have any kind of interest in this. You think there's like a sort of inkling that you might find a utopia buried behind all this stuff, it might be there. So take a closer look. Well, that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. I want to take a moment to thank the entire Art Angle team for putting out incredible episodes week after week while I've been on diaper duty. It was such a success. In fact, that I think you should expect to hear a wider variety of voices on this show going forward. If you like what you heard on this episode, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sony Manoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.